0: G'day, and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode, we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to divers to underwater photographers, citizen scientists, and people that have an intense passion for marine life. My name is Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is Dr. Charlie Varon. He's a marine biologist and an author, and the former head of the Australian Institute of Marine Science. And crazy fact, has discovered nearly 25% of the world's corals. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Hello. Today we're going to talk all about coral, which I think is fascinating because the first thing that pops to mind is they're not a plant, they're actually an animal. So can you tell us a little little bit about what coral is?
1: Well, coral, as you say, is an animal, a very simple animal, like an anemone, but uh, it actually lives like a plant because it's got algae in its tissues. And so the algae photosynthesize. And so coral is entirely entirely dependent on sunlight for growth. And because it is powered by sunlight, it can occupy a niche in the oceans that nothing else can live in uh, effectively. So corals build their own homes and they're very tough and they're very durable. And they've been doing that for hundreds of millions of years.
0: Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about where exactly they live, given that they're like kind of using the sunlight for energy. And what they, because they also, some can eat as well, can't they? Not just produce, not just eat sunlight.
1: Oh yeah, they can live on, all, all reef corals can live on nothing other than sunlight, uh, seawater and what they get out of the seawaters. Uh, but uh, they most uh, have tentacles and they've got stinging cells and they, they capture food, a lot of food. But surprisingly, they depend on the algae more than what they capture. Corals are very many different sorts of corals and they have a very wide spectrum of, um, of life forms like trees, so that what's true of one coral is not true of another and so on. Mm.
0: Yeah, and so I guess when people think of corals, they often think of those big, really colourful, hard reef corals that form these huge colonies.
1: Yeah, the word coral means a variety of different things, but basically hard corals, as we call them, they either build reefs through photosynthesis or about half of all species live in very deep water and they're really taxonomically very different and ecologically, completely different. But a reef coral reef corals are in shallow water. They must have sunlight. They need a temperature. They're very fussy about temperature. If the temperature is too low, algae can outcompete them and they get smothered. If the temperature is too high, the algae produce too much oxygen and uh, that, that becomes poisonous. But they have to live as much as possible on the brink in order to outcompete all the things that uh, they live with as well as uh, outcompete other corals. So corals really have a very very fine-tuned existence which at the moment is the cause of their demise.
0: And so just before we kind of talk a little bit about coral, coral bleaching, which I'm really keen to hear about, I just want to first know how do corals make such mega how do they make such mega structures?
1: Well, they, they extract calcium carbonate from the seawater and they're very good at doing that. And uh, they uh, literally turn that into uh, limestone, into aragonite. And that is the, uh, they build these hard, strong skeletons. Some are very massive and very solid. Some are very fast growing, uh, like staghorn corals. And their skeletons are brittle. Uh, but they all uh, build skeletons out of, out of calcium carbonate, out of limestone. And then later on when they die, That limestone then is cemented by coralline algae into solid reef rock. And that's over thousands and hundreds of thousands to millions of years. Reefs can be, uh, well, they can be enormously thick, five kilometers thick in places.
0: Wow, and I guess that's how you end up with structures like the Great Barrier Reef, which are amazing. The Great
1: Barrier Reef is quite thin actually, compared with others, because the Australian continental shelf is very stable. So they can only live between the the sea surface at low tide and the substrate. And that normally is not much more than um, 100 metres, which is very, very little. A bit more here and a bit less there. Uh, So the Great Barrier is fairly thin. And of course, corals everywhere in the world, uh, because they uh, live in shallow water, they're very um, prone to being wiped out by sea level change. And we've uh, had many monstrous sea level changes in in geological time. They've been slow enough that the corals can regrow in in different places. So uh, that's how atolls are formed. If if a mountain is slowly subsiding, the corals form a reef ring, a ring around the mountain. But uh, as the mountain slowly subsides, if it doesn't go down too quickly, the corals keep on building this ring until it forms an atoll. Uh, that was darwin's million deduction it's quite correct
0: yeah and so speaking of darwin actually that's a good little segue because your first name isn't actually charlie it's john yeah. but yeah. people call you charlie after charles darwin so i've been yeah.
1: charlie since i was six years old yeah after Darwin.
0: <laughs> so like how did you develop such a love for coral and for the ocean
1: uh, ever since I was a little toddler, I used to go down to, uh, I lived in Sydney, and uh, my parents used to take me out to the beach and out to rock platforms, mostly in the northern beaches of Sydney as a littleie. And I um, used to rip off the rock platform like little kids do then, now hopefully. And I had my little aquarium back home. And so I fell in love with marine life. And, uh, and then when I was at university doing postgraduate work, I took up scuba diving. Scuba diving was very unusual then. Uh, only sort of wild young men went scuba diving. It's a bit like skydiving today. Uh, but that brought me to contact with coral reefs and coral reefs completely won me over. So I did an abrupt career change and became a marine biologist, in fact, without ever attending a lecture on marine biology. <laughs> but I'm, again, I'm given a given of you.
0: Oh, wow. And so... What so you became? I think was it the first scientist to work full time on the reef? Was that correct?
1: Yeah. Yes, at that time, um, the Great Reef's future was very shaky. The Queensland Premier Joe Biocchi Peterson was wanting to turn it into um, a, a massive oil rigs and mine the reefs for limestone, the sugar cane. That was defeated by the Whitlam government, but the, the whole notion of reefs was not really in the domain of science because scientists didn't go diving. In fact, I got a postdoc to work at James Cook University because I was the only person who applied for it. You had to be a diver after you had a PhD. Well, I was getting a PhD and I um, was a diver. And so I got the postdoc for no better reason than I was a diver, yeah. <laughs> First full-time job as a, as a researcher on the Great Barrier Reef, yeah.
0: Wow, you must have seen some pretty amazing things in your time. What What is the best thing you've seen on the reef?
1: Oh, gosh, so many. I've worked in all the major coral reef regions of the world. I guess the most... I certainly had a lot of exciting times, but uh, in those days, I had a lot of free reign to do whatever I liked, wherever I liked. So I had a time which students now can only dream of, but I think probably the most exciting places I've ever been to uh, in the northern Great Barrier Reef, in fact, the, the outback Great Barrier Reef, because it's a very wild place, there's lots going on, there's big animals, there's little animals, there's diversity, and it's so much alive in its primordial state. I've written a book about it all. Um, you know, the books only I mean, just starts to dip into the sorts of things I, um, I came across and that we discovered uh, in, the, in this time. It was a time of an enormous amount of discovery. And I love that. Probably the, the biggest land discovery of all was uh, Rain Island, because that was virtually an unknown thing when I led the first expedition to the far northern Great Barrier Reef. And uh, Rain Island is one of the most incredible places on the planet and uh, nothing was known about it till we turned up wow
0: Mm. wow because I've actually been lucky enough to go scuba diving just off the just on the outside zone of rain island and on the great detached reef and having done a bit of diving on the normal reef I was as you said like I was blown away by all Mm. manner of life you know you've got scorpion fish tiny little scorpion fish on the reef and you've got tuna going past yeah. The Great
1: Detached Reef is, is a wonderful place, there's no doubt about that. The outer face of it really is amazing. It plunges down to abyssal depths. But when we had that first expedition there, it was not known how near the, the Great Barrier Reef got to the, uh, the Queensland Trough. In fact, the outer wall of the Great Barrier Reef is the wall of the Queensland Trough. We didn't know that. Uh, we were diving down the outer face expecting to be more or less, more or less like the inner face. of course, it's completely different. And then I think around Rain Island, Great Touched Reef, if you go in the right season, the turtle breeding is incredible. We found, it was over 20,000 turtles in one night. And that was far and away the biggest turtle, green turtle rookery in the world. And um, it was astonishing to see that. And also when we getting in the water, the tiger sharks had come in uh, feeding on the turtles. And uh, to see those magnificent animals underwater was really very exciting. But there's so much to to see in that whole region that uh, every day brings new and wonderful things. It's a fabulous place.
0: And unfortunately, as you're saying, it is pretty, climate change is a pretty tough issue for the whole reef and in particular corals. And I'm interested to hear, like, what exactly is coral bleaching? Because we hear a lot about what, you know, there's coral bleaching on the reef, this huge part is, but I feel like a lot of people, and myself included, don't fully understand what the what coral ble- bleaching is?
1: Well, corals have this algae in their tissues. It's the algae is microscopic, very, very um, small uh, single celled algae, just a few of these cells for each coral cell. And as, as we've just said, that's getting that brings nutrients to the corals. But the corals get the biggest bang for their buck. So they get the algae produced as much as they possibly can by selecting the right strain of algae and so on. Uh, there are many different types of algae or strains of this particular algae. So they get the strain that really maximises the amount of food. Now, when they produce food, it's through photosynthesis, and that also produces oxygen, which is all very well until you get too much oxygen. And almost all animals, us included, die if you get too much oxygen. So the corals realize that they've got algae in their tissues, realize in inverted commas, they've got pathogens in their tissues and they expel them. Algae are what give the corals the color. And so when they become expelled, expel their algae, the corals go white. Then the next thing is the algae are the uh, essential source of food. And a lot of other things, we don't know quite why corals are so addicted to their algae, but they are. And so, this is what if they've expelled all their algae, they can't get food and they just literally starve to death. So, when that happens on a very, very big scale uh, involving big areas, we call it mass bleaching and bleaching because they turn white, and mass because it covers a big area. I've known coral bleaching since the 1990s, but it was around about the turn of the century when we saw the um, first really grand scale mass bleaching when uh, whole areas of reefs turned white and died. And once the corals died, it ceases to, uh, it it, it gradually decays and gets covered with algae and uh, other organisms just can't live in the coral anymore. So it all becomes very quiet and uh, like a graveyard and a great deal of the reefs of the Great Barrier Reef are just like a graveyard. Uh, there was the once they were vibrant and full of life, and a vibrant, full of life reef is quite noisy because it's full of all, all sorts of little critters that chatter to each other for one reason or another. But uh, when they go bleach and they just turn into rubble, and that's it, yeah. they may grow back, they may recover.
0: Yeah. And so I know yourself, you're doing a lot of work to kind of safeguard the future of coral. Can you tell mm. us a little bit about that?
1: Well, for a lot of, many, many, many years ago, I had a lot of contact with the aquarium industry, especially in America. And I was fascinated by their ability to keep corals alive. Not only keep them alive, but the corals, when they're given a suitable environment in an the aquarium, they grow like nothing on earth, really grow well. So a staghorn coral may go 20 centimeters in a single year, or a plate coral can expand. So corals do very well in aquaria. And so I thought, well, it's pretty prudent to keep endangered species in an aquarium just in case they go extinct in the wild. And I sort of brewed on that until I discovered uh, or came across a mob that calls themselves Legacy. The group that started Legacy, they really had a mission to save as much as they can of the Great Barrier Reef and to bring that to the public, bring awareness to the public. It's a very noble Uh, NGO and I fell in love with that NGO and uh, so we partnered up and so that's why I do a lot of the work for for uh, Legacy now. The big thing at the moment is that we are starting a coral biobank with the aim of keeping all the species of the world in Aquaria. It sounds uh, fairly far-fetched and bizarre but it was only last week we collected the first uh, 30 species and they are now uh, housed in aquaria and well, they'll, they'll live and they'll grow and uh, they, they cut up and the pieces can be sent to other aquaria. And uh, so every six months or so, they can be harvested and sent further on. So from a single source, like an aquarium, we can export corals to aquaria everywhere. So if when, and as they are, species are going extinct in the wild, at least we have them in aquaria, And also we have a bank of genetic bank, so that uh, further down the track, when DNA research makes really good discoveries and pretty confident they will, we'll have the broodstock, the original stock from the wild that they can work on. And uh, so when we collect corals, we're preserving them for, for DNA work and any work that will bring good science to conservation. So if you go to the reef now, there's plenty of beautiful places to go to. Um, But most places now have nothing like the diversity they did have when I was a youngster. So when I first worked on the Great Barrier Reef, I spent eight years trooping up and down the Great Barrier Reef, intensely diving all the time. And so I saw an awful lot of it. And really that reef doesn't exist today. Uh, no one will ever see it like I have, and I find that's an extremely sad thing to say. Um, yeah. But we go. we're going to do the best we can to keep those corals going.
0: Yeah, and I think that, as you said before, it's like what legacy do is such an important job and yourself to hopefully one day we can start, you know, rebuilding what we've lost, hopefully.
1: Yeah. In the meantime, um, we need to do as many things as possible to um help corals along if you like it's aiding evolution and we have to we should bear in mind that with the corals continue to be hammered by bleaching there's a there's very intense natural selection going on so we are hopefully seeing survival of the fittest and certainly some species survive much better than others but it's all happening too quickly for the normal processes of evolution to take place yeah the corals have been decimated in the past through climate change but that's over thousands of years we're doing it in a single human lifetime so that's that's the issue the only real solution is to to stop producing the carbon dioxide that's that's causing it all
0: yeah well i was gonna say what if you know anyone listening if they want to help out coral or do stuff to help prolong coral like what they should do and so obviously the first thing is tackle climate change. But are there any other specific things that they can do?
1: Well, Legacy engages a lot with volunteers and uh, people keen on preserving the reef. They've got a website and um, go to that. But everybody uh, should be aware that political pressure really works. Without political pressure, we don't change things. So especially young people are talking to their kids, are talking to their parents and older kids and parents and other people. They're putting pressure on politicians. Um, Australia's uh, track record is is pretty bad, and we are really lagging behind now. So the more pressure we can put on uh, politicians, the more we are lucky to see changes that will really make a difference. So that's what everyone can do, and really. everyone should do, if they care about the planet and they care about forests and the reef and so on.
0: Yeah. Well, there we go. Like, so I guess if you want to help out coral and the Great Barrier Reef, then climate change is the number one thing.
1: It is, yeah, and with so many other ecosystems as well. But really, coral reefs have been hurt much more than most. Up until the fires that we've seen a year ago, really, coral reefs were the stood out by far as the most damaged ecosystem. And it's only through fire that a lot of the terrestrial ecosystems are catching up. But both are being really damaged by climate change. Scientists have been warning of that for to my knowledge, over 40 years. I know I've been speaking about this to anyone who listened to the media and conferences now since the turn of the century. So things happen slowly, but they are happening now. Climate change, only 10 years ago, climate change was something most Australians didn't even believe in. Now, most Australians definitely do believe it's real as well as should.
0: Yeah, I'm just waiting for some... I mean, I was really happy to see... A, while, a, little bit, a little while ago, the New South Wales government put in a really good climate change plan, and I'm hoping one day we see a federal plan come into place.
1: We have to. We have to. At the moment, Australia literally is lagging behind uh, all the developed world. We're, we're doing badly. A lot of the Australian way of doing things is to make excuses or fudge things. This has been going on for a very long time. So we'll have a plan, be it carbon capture or carbon trading or whatever it is. But all this is nested in small talk, but make sure it doesn't work. So Australia is still mining coal as fast as it can. And coal is the primary driver of climate change in the world. And so we are making money now to the very detriment of our planet. And certainly young people should be looking Uh, aghast at what uh, what australia is doing and uh, they would have every right to say you're making money out of my future because that we are it's very simple and getting around all this is surprisingly simple what's happening now with renewables is uh, very straightforward it's been around for a long time australia is mostly behind most other countries but not all And we are getting into energy sources, renewable energy sources, very, very quickly. This is not driven primarily by politicians. It's driven by people and uh, the behavior of people and getting um, solar panels on their roofs and not wasting electricity and so on. So people are getting on board all this um, rather ahead of government action. I'm hoping this will change. And the two will go more hand in hand than they have been. But it wasn't only a few years ago that the government was almost denying, in fact, Tony Abbott was denying climate change. Uh, I found that quite extraordinary. This happens in other countries. Trump has never believed in climate change.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's incredibly, incredibly intense. And I guess, you know, seeing the Great Barrier Reef and seeing the coral bleached and knowing that coral species are going extinct and that... The one of the world's natural wonders will probably disappear because of coal is just mind-blowing. It is. Well, just before we wrap it up, to kind of finish on a bit of a high note, I want to know what your favourite coral species is and where you can find it.
1: Oh, <laughs> I haven't got any favourites. I guess my favourite is an Acropa, Acropotenuous, it doesn't look like much. It looks like a very ordinary Acropora, but it's um, battle hardened. It, it will bleach, but it's very reluctant to bleach. And so when I go to a badly damaged reef, uh, there is a Acropora tenuous, carry, keeping on, keeping on, and uh, good on it. And I hope other corals can then learn, learn the lesson or, or uh, pick up on the, uh, the uh, as yet unknown way that Acropora um, tenuous seems to be escaping what other corals I can't escape. It's, it's, I guess that's my favorite coral now.
0: <laughs> I love how you it's describe not- it, battle hardened. <laughs> oh, and so that's found all over the barrier reef, is that
1: right? It's very widespread in the whole Indo-Pacific. Yeah, across the Indo-Pacific.
0: yeah. Awesome. And, uh,
1: to Japan, all the way across the Indian Ocean Pacific.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, on that note, thank you very much for joining us on our coral episode.
1: Okay, it's been a pleasure.
0: Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by myself, Matt Testoni. You can see more of my photography on Instagram at Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography and my webpage, mtunderwatermedia.com. If you liked today's episode featuring Charlie Veron, you can read more about his amazing story in his book, which is called A Life Underwater by Charlie John Veron. If you've liked the podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and visit our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Sea Podcast, where you can help with a little monthly donation to help the running of the show. Production assistance by Georgia McGrath and music by Dan Musil, and his ragingly cool slide guitar. Tune in next time to hear Dr. Sue Mason talk all about dolphins. This has been the secrets Podcast. Over and out.